Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Good day and welcome back. Today we have a social innovator by the name of Dan Lang, and he's with an organization called Compassionate Canada, a speaker series. Uh, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's I get started. Just before, we, sorry, just before we dive in, yes. the group is called the Compassionate Justice Group. Ah, very important. Repeat that again so everybody gets it. Yeah, the name of our group, and we're based at St. George's Church, and the name of our series is called the Compassionate Justice Speaker Series. Okay, thank you for correcting me. So let's dive in, Dan, and let's start with a description of your academic career. Well, um, it um, started off by having getting an MBA in finance many, many decades ago. I then went into the private sector, and I went well, into hold, marketing. Hold on now. Where, where did you get your uh, BA and then your MBA? Well, actually, there's three degrees involved. I got my undergraduate at Queens, an honors BA, and then I did a master's at U of T, and then subsequently I did an MBA at York. Okay. And what was your major in uh, your MBA? In my MBA, my major was finance. And then once I finished my MBA, I went into marketing. I wanted a well-rounded education. Okay. So let's move ahead into your uh, work career. I started off in the packaged goods industry, working with Nabisco Brands and then uh, Richardson Vicks and Procter & Gamble. And I spent 10 years in, in marketing and, pro- and product management. And from there, um, I decided to step out into the consulting world. I formed my own consulting company, and our focus was on strategy and changing the performance of an organization. And in doing that, a large part of the work we did, one of the underlying sort of themes was to empower those people inside organizations to improve the quality of the work life and at the same time improve the productivity of the organization. And that work we did for close to 20 years. Wow. Can you give us a couple of examples without naming the names? Yeah, I'll give you one example. Um, This was a large packaged goods company, a multinational. They had developed their strategic plan, their direction, and I was involved in that. And they realized that they were not going to be able to realized the type of new product development given how the organization currently performed. And so what we did is we did a whole bunch of interventions with everybody in the organization at the national level, getting them to rethink how they actually worked in their jobs. This also led to the identification, what are the core driving processes that actually drive the business and drive new product development? And so what that led to, and this is over a course of about a year and a half, led to redesigning completely how they developed new businesses. And the key in all this was it wasn't the senior executives making these decisions, it was all the people who actually worked in these core work processes. 
And so it was very enabling for them because they could really refine how they did their jobs, what they did, and how they worked across the organization in driving that core work process. There's one example. Sounds like uh, almost instilling a form of entrepreneurship within the organization. Very much so. I think we were well ahead of our time when we were doing this. So can you give us a second example? Yeah, let me think. Um, A second example would be this was a major bank. And they had an internal group that developed IT product for their internal clients. What this bank discovered was that many of the internal clients within the bank were actually going and sourcing IT capability outside of the bank to the tune of about $500 million a year, actually. And so there was something very broken and very wrong about how the internal IT folks serviced their internal clients. And so what we did is we went in and actually did a detailed exploration of what actually transacted between the internal IT group and the various internal clients. And we saw basically how the whole thing broke down very badly. And it was a lot of it was around the internal IT group did not know how to work with with an internal client. And so we completely changed how internal IT interacted with internal clients, and that led to a reduction of about 70 to 80% within a year of using outside resources, which saved the bank a huge amount of money. And they were able to service effectively their internal clients. So consulting for 20 years, then what happened next? I decided to pursue something that was very meaningful to me. I partnered up with a man named Eli Bay. Eli Bay pioneered the whole field of stress management in Canada and was probably one of the first in North America. And in my due diligence, and I've known Eli for a long time, but my due diligence, his is the best program out there in relationship to teaching people how to self-regulate their internal states. And this, of course, plays into all areas of mental health. It also plays into a lot of areas of physical health because the impact can be felt in both areas. So we created a company called Resilient Living. And what the focus of Resilient Living was, was to recreate Eli's training, which he delivered live, into various electronic forms. And the first wave of electronic forms was creating it as DVDs and CDs. And then the second wave was to create it as an online delivered program. And with the online delivered program, we focused on selling it to organizations. It was not a a, a consumer play, it was a B2B play. And so that really has been the work of Resilient Living. Quite recently, we've decided, given the absolute pandemic of mental health issues, we're gonna take the program and make it available to free for everybody. So that, in a nutshell, is what Resilient Living has been about, and that's what we're doing right now. That's terrific. So is there a website that people can uh, reach you on with regards to that one? Yeah, in terms of the free online, the URL is intercomonline.com. That's terrific. And are there a series of webinars or videos? Um, it's a, no, it's a self-directed program, 
so it does not involve webinars. It involves um, a whole bunch of training exercises, which are basically meditation-based, and they are skill training. In other words, you learn how to do this. You will retain the techniques that you're exposed to in the programming, so eventually you can do it on your own. We don't want to create a long-term dependency. What we want to do is enable people to acquire the skill to do it themselves. So and do you, so, do you, ahead, uh, do you do you measure? Do you, is it a membership-based, or how how do you know whether you're reaching people? Um, we will know from the metrics. Now, when you open it up to the public, there's no password or anything like that. You just go in and do it. And so we will have all kinds of metrics, you know, that will tell us how many people are using it, how how much they're using the program, and all the various metrics are available. So we have a measurement base. Now, over time, we might seek to see if we can get corporate sponsorship to keep doing this. But right now, we're just putting it out and seeing what happens. Okay. Uh, I think uh, I see opportunities for corporate social responsibility in terms of both financial and in-kind and volunteer support. Yes, I know I think it's a lot of potential. But as I say, Peter, the first step, very simply, is to get it out there and see how people are engaging with it. Okay, so that's only one of your ventures. And let's uh, dive in a little more to... Uh, what you're doing with a uh, community of faith. Okay. As I mentioned at the beginning, I'm part of a very small group at St. George's Church in Toronto. And over 10 years ago, we were attending a very small group lecture by one Tony Dube, who basically is the, the grandfather of criminology in Canada. And what we heard in that lecture just floored us. One of the basic observations Tony made, he said, over the last 30 years, the actual incidence of crime has been declining in both Canada and the U.S., but in Canada, as well as the U.S., the actual incarceration rates were going up. And then if you looked at the actual sort of composition of the increased incarceration, a disproportionate number of people who were being incarcerated were indigenous. And the secondary and a disproportionate number of people who were black were being incarcerated. That really got us, you know, engaged with that area. And so what we decided to do was to start a speaker series on our criminal justice system. And that's both sides. It's both the justice system itself and also the correction side. And another instigating factor for us to do this, too, was we were watching what the conservative government at the time was doing to our criminal justice system. They were essentially politicizing it and using it as a battering ram to feed their base. And, of course, the great phrase you heard from the Harper government for years was being tough on crime. And they were doing really, really nasty stuff, quite frankly, you know, to those people who were being incarcerated. And um, it was, you know, that's what got us going. And so we decided to start a speaker series and bring top flight people in who worked in the field in various capacities and to provide to the general public, because all our events are free, um, education around our criminal justice system. And it started off small. I think our first session was about 50 or 60 people. But it grew and it grew. In the last three or four years, I would say, 
were attracting between 250 and 600 people per session. Um, the key is to do this in a way that it's self-funding, so it's not a burden on the church. And so we have, from the beginning, relied upon donations at the door, and that's covered all our costs, you know, in terms of marketing and also providing. We provide a free lunch for people before the event itself. And uh, so it's a completely self-funding. And from the church's point of view, um, you know, the phrase these days is creating a community hub. Well, that's what we started doing 10 years ago. The value for the United Church, I think, is at both the local and the national level. At the local level, it provides a vehicle for a church to become meaningful to a community outside its own congregation. So an example, Peter, of that would be, I would say, I, I know this because I ask people when we run the events, 90% of the people who are coming are outside of our congregation and are outside of the United Church. So they're being exposed to what, you know, a church can provide to the broader public in a very meaningful way. At the national level, from the church's point of view, it puts out the, the you know, it builds the awareness that churches do more than just have Sunday sermons and um, provide real support within the broader community. And uh, in our case with uh, Compassion Justice Speaker Series, we've also had, uh, I mean, everybody has contributed to this, by the way. It's all pro bono. I mean, all our speakers. And about four years ago, we picked up the support of the Globe and Mail. And so every event that we've run for the last four years, the Globe and Mail has provided huge advertising value to us. And, um, and it contributes significantly to bring people into the church. I would say, Peter, over the last three and a half, four years, the Globe Mail has given us at no cost of over half a million dollars in free advertising. Wow. And uh, so it's been a major contributor. But everybody who's you know involved with this now um, appreciates the value of what we're doing. So these so that, uh, speeches are all on... Uh where, where can they be located? They are recorded, I assume. Yes, they're audio recorded. We haven't gone to video yet. Um, they're audio recorded. If you just simply search Eggins St. George's Church, Toronto, and you'll see a tab there that says Education, and the second tab, seven sub-tab down is Compassionate Justice, and you'll see a good cross-section of uh, our speakers, all the recordings of them, so they're all there. What's really amazed me over the years is how willing top-flight people are willing to do this at no cost and uh, oftentimes creating presentations from the ground up. So, I mean, we've had a combination of, of well-known people, but also other people who are very experienced in the field who really can provide insight to various aspects of the system, as well as we've had people who've been incarcerated or are currently incarcerated and or who were incarcerated, come and talk. And, so, and interestingly, some of those presentations are quite the most powerful because it humanizes those people who've been incarcerated. We tend to think of them, unless you've been involved in the system, we tend to think of them as convicts. No, they are human beings who've made mistakes, gotten convicted, and put in jail. And when you humanize, it moves them from being the other to being just like us. 
that is a very powerful human experience. We also, too, I should mention, too, when you go through our speakers, for two years we also focused on indigenous matters, and specifically the, the effects uh, on the output of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And so our first speaker in that area was Murray Sinclair. And Murray, as you probably know, was the man who led the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he came about six months after the report was published, and we had three other speakers um, over the next year, um, all focused on aspects of truth, truth and reconciliation. So we haven't been exclusively focused on criminal justice, but that has been our major focus. So speakers is one thing. Is there any way, and maybe this is a future activity, to turn that into advocacy and action? There is advocacy, obviously, in the presentations themselves. Because the presentations focus on what needs to change. Um, we have not organized active advocacy groups, per se, I do know many people have, as a result of coming to the series, have taken steps to communicate with the politicians in Ottawa. Um, many of the speakers themselves have been advocates, but we've not organized an actual sort of advocacy process in itself. There's a, there's a delicate line, Peter, between being educational and objective and becoming an advocate. And our principal, we had this discussion about three or four years ago, our principal role is to effectively educate. And to effectively educate, you have to have people who are going to be very objective about it and not necessarily be, for us to become an advocacy platform. I don't know if you're going to see that distinction, but for us we felt our primary role and what we were good at doing was to provide high-quality public education. So as a uh, social innovator, Dan, this has mainly taken place in the Toronto area. Do you have any plans to take it online or to set it up in different communities across Canada? I'm doing that right now, Peter. Um, we currently have three other churches that have started their own speaker series. Port Nelson in Burlington, Parkminster United in Waterloo, and um, uh, Pickering United in the Ajax, Ajax area. And I have about 13 other congregations who are very interested in doing this. <coughs> Excuse me. My vision, very simply, is to have hubs right across the country who are providing, you know, publicly available speaker series on matters of social justice. We have chosen to focus on criminal justice, but I've said to the other congregations, if you use the title compassionate justice, you can put anything underneath that within the field of social justice. So an example of what I'm saying, Peter, would be Port, Port Nelson in Burlington. They've spent the last three years helping three Syrian families come to Canada and get themselves settled. So they're very closely connected with the field of immigration. It's a really personal interest to many people in that group. 
And so they have focused on the whole field of immigration as the focus for their speaker series. And so the individual congregations have the latitude to pick the area that is really meaningful to them. The area of criminal justice, interestingly, most people are not interested in. Unless you have had direct involvement, you know, either as a family member or as an individual yourself, in the criminal justice system, most of us don't think twice about it. And yet with that general indifference across a broad number of, you know, the population, here are we attracting, you know, as they say, 250 to 600 people per event. So what we're doing in the criminal justice area is a real awareness building. And um, as I say, my hope is two to three years out, we will have 10 to 15 congregations across the country as almost, you can think of it almost like a franchise, but you don't want two churches down the street competing with each other. Um, but, you know, 10 to 15 churches across the country in major centers, <laughs> excuse me, running their own series. So they would be like a social franchise. That's correct. And once I have assisted them to get up and running, they run their own show. So do you have an operations manual or something like that that would help a community oh, of yeah. faith that was interested in pursuing this area? Oh, yeah. The first thing I created was basically an introductory brief about the idea itself and the potential value to an individual congregation. The second document I created was basically what I referred to as the cookbook, which is a very detailed run-through and exactly how we have run our series. Now, in saying that, I've also said in this that this is how we did it. You don't have to do it exactly the same way, but this will give you a starting point of all the details and mechanics you have to think about and the resources you need to actually create your own series. And I've been told by the congregations who actually started up and doing it, they said this was absolutely invaluable because they had the complete how-to guidance system. So as a former consultant, are you charging a fee for this service? No. No, what I'm doing, Peter, is I'm seeking funding uh, from the church itself, from foundations within the church. And um, I've, I've so far succeeded in getting enough funding for me to do what I'm doing. Again, I don't want this to be a burden on the individual congregations. I mean, particularly right now with COVID-19, um, the, the churches are just bleeding financially. So would you be open to other communities of faith, like mosques, synagogues, temples? Yes. No, I would. Um, but my principal focus right now, because this is a one-man effort, is other United Churches across the country. So... There is a need, it sounds like, to build a team of volunteers who could support what you're doing with you providing the overview and the monitoring. That's a possibility down the road, Peter. Definitely. Um, right now, I'm just doing, quote, the startup, and we'll see how it goes in terms of engagement with the other congregations. And once I get a better sense of that, then I'll look at the possibility of getting other volunteers involved. 
because uh, I think you do have a uh, a form of a social enterprise that you don't realize what you're doing because you are a social innovator and you are giving back to the community in a, a very big way. Appreciate that, Peter. As I said, I think I want to sort of take this first wave myself and see the results. And the second piece is in terms of other, you know, other people driving this forward, it's important that they have some firsthand experience with this because there's a lot of nuance in how you manage this and how you, how you, you know, market it and all the various other aspects of communication. And um, so seeking other volunteers, I would want to have people who've, who've done stuff like this before um, who innately would understand how to do this well. And at that point, um, yes, no, I'd be very interested in looking at other people getting involved. So obviously you're moving to become a national organization with social franchises in various communities that could also lead to running uh, conferences and specialty areas, whether it's family law or criminal law or corporate law. Yes. The, the, the constraint, Peter, in terms of with the churches... Um, and this will vary from congregation to congregation, is that you have to have people within that congregation who are capable and willing to actually run this. Keep in mind, when you look at most United Church congregations across Canada, you're looking at people typically 65 years age and plus. And so you've got to find, you know, within a given congregation, people that have the horsepower, strength, and dedication and motivation to actually run this. So that's part of what I'm testing out right now. You could have a minister in a church who is very interested in doing this, but the next question he has to ask himself is, or herself is, do I have the capacity with my current congregation to get three or four or five people together to actually, you know, build this and run this series? Okay, well, the question that I would like to ask is, do they have to be within the congregation? Could they just be from the community and have a passion or an interest in uh, a form of law and making change? and be part of that committee that could be led by members of the congregation. Yes, it definitely could be someone outside of the church. The church is a great vehicle to do it through because they've got the facility. They also have the credibility by virtue of being a church, of being there as a public service. There's lots of speaker series that are being run out there where you, you know, you pay to attend. Uh, when it's run by a church, it has a very different quality. And particularly if you're able to offer this for free, that also has a quality of really giving back to the community. I mean, the, the issue of using a church, Peter, I mean, our last speaker was Beverly McLaughlin, who was our Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada for 17 years. Um, we had 600 people in the room. 
I don't know where else you could, you know, guess, you know, a facility that could accommodate 600 people. So I think there's many qualities, but we're doing this through a church that is really, I think, has tremendous value add. So the obvious question is, are you considering setting this up as a separate organization linked to the Eglinton uh, St. George United Church with a separate website? I want to keep it connected with the United Church. I don't want to separate it from Eglinton St. George's because running the series through Eglinton St. George's, it is enhancing the you know awareness uh, in the broader public of the church itself. And so I wouldn't want to set it up as a separate organization. I would want to keep it as being within, you know, the congregational, you know, gambit. So an example, Peter, every event we run, the first person to stand up in front of the whole audience is our minister. And so people see right off the top that this is connected to this church. We're not just an outside group who's rented the sanctuary for a couple of hours. And I think that's a very important quality, and that's also the basis of the funding I'm getting, is I'm doing things, you know, we're doing this series to support the United Church. The backdrop of all this period, and I'm sure you're well aware of this, I mean, churches are falling by the wayside right across this country. I mean, in the case of the United Church, and it'd be no different than the other churches, I would say they're closing down one church a week. And yet there is a need... I believe, you know, for community, greater community involvement, you know, right across this country. And the churches are, are a great potential vehicle for creating that. And you so have I a lot want, to offer as a social innovator. Once again, could you remind us how to connect with what you're doing? Um, probably the best thing, Peter, I, I can give you my email. And um, and I would also suggest that you take a look at the website of the United of Dignity St. George's United Church and look up, you know, our past series so you get a sense of what this is all about. Okay, Dan, you you've, uh, wish- you've uh, really created a lot of interest, I think, and uh, we'll make that available to people on a broad basis. Thank you for your time this morning. You're very welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure chatting with you.